You're listening to the RSA Conference podcast, where the world talks security. Hello, and welcome to the April RSA Conference podcast for 2020. This is Britta Glade, Director of Content and Curation for RSA Conference, and I'm joined today by our program chair, Dr. Hugh Thompson. Hello, Hugh. Hi, Britta, and welcome to our listeners. Uh, geez, it, it really is great to be able to connect with our community. We are truly in unprecedented times, and across all sectors, security teams are dealing with an increased number of incidents and are challenged in having to respond to those incidents remotely. That's why today we wanted to talk about best practices for incident response, looking specifically at the age-old question of analysis versus automation. And our, our goal in this podcast is for listeners to walk away with a better understanding of what matters most right now. So to help us answer those questions, we have two amazing guests who are very well-versed in incident response. Tim and Jennifer, please introduce yourselves. Thanks, Hugh. I appreciate that. How's everyone doing today? So, yeah, my name is Tim Bandos. I'm the Vice President of Cybersecurity at Digital Guardian. Uh, I've been in this industry for a little over 15 years now, focused on incident response and, and you know, cybersecurity internal controls. Um, today, currently, I work for, uh, you know, Digital Guardian, as I mentioned, and what we do is uh, specialize in data loss prevention and manage detection and response. Uh, so, you know, I'm pleased to be here, and I'm looking forward to, you know, discussing IR and how we can help uh, our listeners today. Awesome, Tim. Great to have you. And Jennifer, let me turn it over to you. Thank you. Uh, my name is Jennifer Ayers. I'm the Vice President of Overwatch, our managed threat hunting service provided by CrowdStrike based off of our Falcon platform. Uh, my background and expertise is in incident response, computer forensics, threat hunting, and a myriad of other things for about the past 20 plus years. And I'm very excited today to talk about incident response versus automation. Thanks again, Tim and Jennifer, for being here with us today. Um, Tim, I want to direct the first question to you, just to kind of get a baseline understanding for, for our listeners and our conversation today, um, in terms of what you're seeing in and around the challenges that security teams are facing thus far in 2020. Um, just about every aspect of life has changed in the last couple months. Are the types of incidents that organizations facing, are they the same? Are they different? What are you seeing? Specifically, what we're seeing are our companies, I mean, for one, not even having incident response plans at all in place, right, ahead of an event like a cyber attack during a pandemic. And, you know, theoretically, that can be a lot more impactful, you know, given the current landscape today. Uh, a lot of organizations have been scrambling a bit right over the last month or so to, to ensure that employees can connect and, and remotely, you know, while also trying to balance uh, cybersecurity needs. You know, we've had a lot of calls coming in requesting assistance and helping to develop incident response plans or, or simply just acting as an extension of their team in case something does occur, right? So, so having a list of protocols to follow, you know, roles and responsibilities outlined and actions to take is, is what ultimately will determine how successful you are when needing to respond to an incident during a time like this. Um, you know, and, and in our managed detection and response offering, we, we do a lot of 24 by 7 threat hunting, alert triage, and we've seen a tremendous, uh, I think, spike in activity, things that we're seeing uh, with, you know, COVID-19 themed phishing attacks and attempts to essentially a 
lure a lot of organizations from clicking on links and, and uh, allowing them to essentially get into the environment. So, so there have been, I think, an increase in IRs. But more importantly, I think there's been an increase in just the worry or concern that if something does happen, adequately prepared and protected. Uh, makes a lot of sense. And, and Jennifer, you're sitting at the front lines of this also, and you're seeing the activity inside of some of the biggest companies in the world. What are the challenges that you're observing now? And how do you think that businesses can be more proactive ahead of time, especially in this situation, uh, in defending themselves against these kinds of attacks? So to second what Tim has said, you know, we're definitely also observing a significant increase in activity. You know, we've seen threat actors using social engineering tactics such as phishing, email scams, vishing, and even disinformation campaigns from more than nation-state actors. You know, as targeting tends to follow fear or greed, actors are exploiting desperation and risky behavior during this time, you know, especially in the e-crime or the cybercrime landscape you know, where they're looking for essentially victims of opportunity, as Tim highlighted, using the current pandemic as lures, using also, we're seeing quite a few now financial lures being put in place for for companies that may or may not be behind on particular payments in order to, you know, get into their environment and work on achieving their actions on objectives. You know, also, as Tim highlighted, the key thing is making sure that companies have an incident response process to be able to handle these types of scenarios. This isn't new by any stretch of the imagination. Lures always change. In this case, it's just a lot more exacerbated given the pandemic that is currently occurring across the globe. But we are still seeing some significant gaps in incident response procedures across our customer environments. Thanks for that perspective. And, and Tim, let me, let me go back to you for a second. You know, there's, there's been a lot of debate over the last few years in manual analysis versus automation when it comes to incident response. And I'm curious, for those companies that maybe haven't decided to automate or to, you know, lay the groundwork at least for automation when there could be an incident, uh, what's happening there? Are they thinking about putting in more automation frameworks and fabric? And what matters most for them right now, if you were to give them advice? From an automation perspective, I think key elements are, you know, key stages within the incident response process that you can automate. And, and there's some that you can't. I think whether or not, you know, you're looking at automation and orchestration type tools, you really, at the very beginning, need to ensure that your environment is at least at an adequate level from a visibility perspective across the organization, right? And at the perimeter. You know, from, from my side of the house, I, I think I've always felt that logs, you know, coming from an endpoint, such as process executions, network connections, registry activity, you know, that type of telemetry is one of the most important sources to have. You know, during a phishing attack or a web drive-by download, if it's not proactively being blocked by a security solution, then at a minimum, you need to at least be able to detect it. Otherwise, you're going to run into, a, I think, a, a dwell time issue. And what I mean by that is, you know, if an adversary gets in and starts moving around laterally, that duration of time is going to be your biggest enemy. So, you know, having a centralized location of logs is, is key to help you detect and assist with an investigation so that you can take the next steps towards neutralizing an attack. 
And I think without having that visibility or, you know, continuous collection of logs, it's going to require some, you know, rolling up to the sleeves and hands-on disk forensics in order to, to piece that puzzle together. Because, you know, if a single system is missed during the scoping of an intrusion, you're essentially leaving a wide open back door for the adversary to come back in and retool and redeploy, you know, new variants of malware. And then the whole cycle has to start all over again. So, so I think at, at the very beginning, before you even get to that orchestration piece, you know, just making sure, you know, that you have that, that adequate level of visibility is very important. Jennifer, I want to direct this one to you. There's a lot of discussion within the industry, you know, and, and the term Tim just used of, you know, right level. Well, you know, what is the right level? What equals the right level for, for different organizations in different situations at different times? What can security teams that maybe don't have that right level of visibility do right now to improve? their incident response capabilities? You know, is, is what specifically should be included in their security policies that maybe helps them to get that comprehensive visibility? I think there are a number of different approaches to that, but to go back to what Tim was just highlighting, you know, the right level of visibility needs to incorporate the necessary level of visibility. So it's about having the right visibility to the devices, making sure that you have the right visibility to the network, making sure that you have right visibility even to access to be able to start to begin, you know, the story or the, the contextual alignment of these data sources to determine what type of activity is occurring. But it doesn't need to be everything. It doesn't need to be every last little log, every last little bit or byte that is traversing a company network. It does have a lot to do with the value add that that particular data can provide in terms of investigating a particular incident. So aside from access policies like, you know, uh, VPN, you know, multi-factor authentication and asset management, you know, companies should consider visibility beyond the traditional log solutions and look to EDR-type solutions that can provide you know, visibility as to what's happening at the core of a system as opposed to just the actions that occur on a system. Now, this becomes a critical component for IR because it helps identify and remediate malicious behaviors that are happening. So if you think about ransomware, it isn't just enough to stop the ransomware from executing anymore, you really have to understand how it's getting there. What additional behaviors need to be taken into consideration to prevent the stages of that ransomware being dropped in the first place from happening? You bring up a couple of great points, and I, I've actually got a question for both of you. You know, I, I would think it's pretty far down the, the incident response plan of, of most companies to have, you know, IR meets pandemic and all of the things associated with that. But I'm curious, you know, now that we are in this time and folks are having to deal with remotely doing IR on systems, and, you know, Tim, let me go to you first on this and and just ask, you know, how do we better prepare for situations like this in the future? You know, I'm most accustomed to the traditional IR response where, you know, a bunch of human beings kind of physically land inside of an organization. They start imaging hard disks, you know, all, all of the things that, that require yeah, you know, a set of manual uh, intervention and forensics uh, on top of some of the automated stuff. But what should folks think about now in terms of planning for the future? 
you know, technology uh, has evolved too, but I think having the appropriate level of skills, you know, from the very beginning, right, and even experience is, is important during incident response. And that comes down to either having, you know, an internal team or even a managed service offering to support you during an engagement. You know, you want to look for those key skills, though, like log analysis, forensics, reverse engineering, or even just, you know, dynamic analysis of malware. You know, some of those areas will absolutely drastically improve your ability to, to effectively and, you know, efficiently respond. So service providers should at a minimum, you know, have those types of skill sets if, you know, you are looking to outsource it. But it's also important to make sure that, you know, they have SLAs and response times in place. You know, are they readily available at two in the morning if some large scale ransomware outbreak occurs or there's a state sponsored attack? You know, how long does it take for them to respond and, and get on those calls to assist? You know, so, so service providers should have those areas covered if unable to do it internally. You know, if we go back 10, 15 years, I remember, you know, I used to work for a, a large manufacturing company. I was a single person in a, you know, cybersecurity team was doing, you know, incident response threat intelligence because we didn't have the budget. And there really wasn't that whole term of, you know, threat actor activity occurring, even though it was occurring. Right? Uh, almost on a day-to-day -day basis. So it was something that we had to build up and, you know, even kind of prove out literally to the CEO that we had issues in our environment. But, but what I really wanted to get at is, you know, when you're in your cybersecurity organizations, and this is true even today, a lot of times these individuals are wearing a million different hats. I mean, you're not just focused on IR and threat intelligence. You're also looking at cybersecurity controls and building out, you know, security awareness campaigns possibly. So it really depends too on, you know, the size of your organization and, you know, where you can actually spend the effort of time to kind of focus. But I, I think today, uh, you know, what organizations can do is, is at least prepare, right? Have the skill sets in place or, or at least partner, you know, with a company that, that can assist during those times. And Jennifer, same question. You know, what are you seeing and how do you think people can better lay the foundation for preparing uh, for the future? You know, it does go back to making sure that security is an investment from the business perspective and not just, you know, that little tiny carved out percentage of the IT budget because it's a checkbox to have for some compliance requirement. You know, addressing the types of threats that we consistently see on a day-to-day -day basis, you know, comes from so many different areas, whether it's targeting from nation state or whether it's criminal, you know, criminal operation or hacktivist operation. We're no longer in a position to have organizations where people can wear multiple hats because the business can't afford it. It is about understanding the threats that are targeting that particular industry or the threat landscape as a whole, making sure that we're building these teams accordingly. The other part of the burden of responsibility, though, doesn't just rely on the security team or the security budget. It is also about making sure that business unit leaders, you know, all the way up to board members are aware of the threats and how those threats could impact business operations. You know, if you think about today, we're, we're so much more flexible now than we used to be, a case that has very recently been proven in terms of the amount of people who are now able to remotely work. But when you look at the, the use of nimble cloud technology, making sure that security teams or IT teams are, are following the rules and regularly configuring and patching devices, making sure that there are continued security awareness training going on to the end users who may be prone to click those links, those are critical strategies to have in any crisis. So when you step back and look at your response plan, that response plan should be all-inclusive of every layer of the business that you can potentially touch plus the capabilities of the teams that you have to be able to react to any intrusion or incident that may occur. 
There's been some extremely good guidance that both of you have given here. I'm taking wild notes as we go through, and, and the wheels are turning with all the guidance you've given to to the organization for what they need themselves, but also what they need to be asking of their partners. Um, and I think of you know large organizations that maybe have smaller businesses that are in their supply chain. Um, there's, there's all kinds of implications and ripples. Um, for a final question to both of you, starting with Jennifer, when we're talking service providers, when we're talking, you know, a partner, what types of questions should people be asking first and foremost of these service providers to make sure they're in a good, secure place? So as a service provider, I can tell you what questions I love when prospects and, and customers ask me. I think one of the most important questions that I get asked that is my favorite to answer is, how are we going to communicate and how are we going to interact? You know, I love to see ourselves, from a, especially from a Falcon Overwatch perspective, as a partner to our customers as opposed to just being the vendor. There are going to be aspects of the customer environment that the customer security team is going to know intimately that I'm not going to know as that service provider. How better can we partner to share that information back and forth, especially during an intrusion? I will know a box is an SQL box. I will know a box is running a specific operating system. I will not know what that box means to that business in terms of business process or critical asset. So when we do talk to our customers, I make sure to keep reiterating the questions they should be asking me isn't just about my SLA or just about how I go through and do things. It should also be about how can we work better together to accomplish the mission of disrupting that adversary activity before it becomes a breach. Tim, from your perspective, parting words, what's got to be number one, two, three with questions to be asking of service providers? Yeah, um, I mean, I think Jen has always nailed that one, so it's always hard to kind of follow uh, after that. But she nailed it right on the head, though, in terms of, you know, the questions that are being asked, because without a doubt, establishing a relationship, you know, with your service provider is key, right? Uh, you know, making sure that you guys are on the same page, right? Everything is kind of outlined. You know, what does that process look like? Um, and, and just really giving them comfort that you're going to be there during time of need, um, because that's what they're concerned about a lot of times. You know, if something were to happen, uh, you know, in my environment, what does that look like from a response perspective? You know, how fast can we respond? But let's say they have another third-party service provider, right, that's monitoring logs. How do you guys integrate with that organization? You know, can you send logs from maybe your EDR solution to them? Can you, you know, integrate some of your case management capabilities, you know, with ours to see from a, a response perspective that we're staying on top of tickets and, and kind of responding to, to maybe, you know, medium or, or low level or high level alerts, right? So all of that is important. But when it comes to, you know, asking them questions, you, you look at, at a company like CrowdStrike, you know they're going to have the appropriate level of skills, right? And you know they're going to have the threat intelligence and everything that's necessary, right, in order to be able to respond. Um, but it's really, you know, driving that initial point is, you know, who's going to be there for the long term? Who's going to be there, you know, when you do require, you know, that additional level of assistance? Because that is very important, you know, especially on the skill side. I, I will say, when I was on the other side of the fence, when we were looking at service providers, one of the most, I think, important skills to, to look for is forensic analysis. Um, I've always been a huge proponent of having forensic capabilities because when you have an incident, you need to be able to collect those key artifacts of interest off an endpoint uh, and be able to dissect them, like the master file table, the event logs, the registry halves, the browser history, right? You need to be able to reconstruct that attack. 
you know, knowing those traces are left behind on a device and, and, and being able to, you know, scope out that intrusion is extremely paramount. So from that perspective, uh, you know, I, I always want to focus on, on, you know, that part of the skill side and making sure that, you know, those capabilities are there because otherwise things are going to be left behind. Things are going to be overseen or missed. And, and, and that could be the difference between a successful incident response campaign or, or one that has failed and you, you can't ultimately, you know, neutralize an attack. So that's kind of how I would respond to that. Oh, fantastic. Well, Tim and Jennifer, thanks so much for taking the time for this. I know we, you, you started the podcast, uh, both of you, by saying that you've seen an increase in activity. So, unfortunately, this is such a critical time for folks to um, get more educated and informed about incident response. So, really, really appreciate it. Thanks so much for being a part of it. And thanks to all of our listeners for joining us and look forward to seeing you on the next podcast.